0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. We are continuing our Season 9 theme on biblical sexuality today with uh, Dr. Deepak Reju is joining us to talk about uh, the topic of pornography. He's written extensively on this. So I'm looking forward to getting you to that interview. Before I do that, um, we share a lot of resources in this episode. And one resource that I wanted to highlight is RYM's uh, children's book, Not If But When Preparing Our Children for Worldly Images. Uh, this is a book that's written for parents to utilize alongside their child in talking about the topic of pornography. Uh, it's aimed at around 7 years to 10 years old um, as you know the statistics on pornography continue to tell us that children are being exposed at earlier and earlier ages. And so this is a way to establish a biblical uh, understanding of sex and sexuality with our children as well as preparing them for some of those worldly images that they'll encounter in this fallen world. So I did want to point people to that. It's produced by Christian focused publications. Again, the title is not if, but when preparing our children for worldly images. Right now, here's my conversation with Deepak. Hey everybody, welcome back to the local youth worker. Uh, Today I have Joe Deegan with me. Joe, how's it going?
1: It's going great. Thanks for having me, John.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Joe is jumping on uh, to help me as we welcome uh, Deepak Reju to the podcast. Uh, Deepak, how's it going?
2: Going good. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you for making the time. Uh, D- Deepak is the associate pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Um, and remind me, h- how long have you been there now?
2: Uh, well, I first walked in the doors in 1991. So literally, I'm as old as some of the furniture in the building now. Been around <laughs> that long. Um, but I've been on staff as a staff pastor for about 14 years. Okay. Okay.
0: All right. And and what all do you oversee there? I know you, you assist with some of the counseling that takes place there. But what are some of your other, your other roles on staff there?
2: Yeah, we're hired as generalists, which means um, we try to avoid just being in our niches uh, or the areas of strength. So we'll do, I'll do weddings, funerals, lead worship, teach Sunday school, just all the things that a pastor normally does. But then I spend a lot of time doing counseling uh, which, which means I'm in front of people who are uh, having hard times with suffering and sin, uh, I'll spend a lot of time training. So right now I have four different groups of members. So tonight six to seven o'clock I'll meet with 10 members and I'm training them through material of instruments or deemers hands by Paul Tripp. Mm. Um, so it's a year long training we do for our members. And then I'll do a lot of work with um, family ministry. So children's ministry and youth ministry. I work with the staff, the deacons. Um, So right now, post COVID, as we're hoping to turn in the fall, we're trying to rebuild our children's ministry as it's been on hold for a while. So literally, I wrote a pastoral letter yesterday asking for volunteers to consider jumping back in. That's another part of the job.
0: Yeah, that's exciting to think about that starting to yeah open back up, hopefully return to some sense of normalcy. And I do want to let our listeners know, for those who remember, Charles Hedman, uh, who is on staff with Deepak you uh, joined us on a podcast. Says, I think we were talking about teens and technology. Uh, he was on. Um, and So you guys work together. Uh, but Deepak is also an author. Um, he has written on uh, the topic pornography that we'll be discussing today, but he's in uh, the PNR series, 31-day devotional series, Pornography, Fighting for Purity is a book that he's written. Uh, He wrote the book, She's Got the Wrong Guy, Why Smart Women Settle, um, and then On Guard, Preventing and Responding to Child Abuse in the Church. Uh, You've got other titles as well. We're going to talk about a forthcoming book on pornography um, that you have through PNR. Before I do that, I don't want to forget you were married to Sarah. Is that correct? And you have five children?
2: Yeah, Sarah and I met here at the congregation. So we'll mark 20 years in October and five kids ages 17, 16 to seven, two boys uh, on the bookends and all the passion and emotion, three girls in the middle.
0: All right, so yeah, you've got your own youth ministry and children's ministry at home. So you're a very, very busy guy. Um, look, as we get into discussing your your new book uh, or forthcoming book, um, and I believe you said hopefully September, October, twenty twenty one. Yeah, can be looking for October
2: twenty twenty one. It's it's they're hopefully getting it on the market.
0: Okay. And it's a a two-volume series. Uh, I think the the working title right now, Rescue Plan, Developing a Blueprint to Defeat Pornography, and then Rescue Skills, 22 Essential Skills for Restoring Freedom to the Sexually Addicted. Um, And again, you've written and researched a lot on this topic. And as we get to discussing pornography, um, I feel like it's important for us to define terms a little bit. I'd love for you to kind of help us um, pornography as, as well as, as lust. Um, I, I think back to a book written by Tim Chester, uh, closing the Windows: steps to living porn free. Um, I always liked a, a definition that he gave, he says, porn is anything we use for sexual titillation, gratification, or escape, whether it was intended for that purpose or not. But I'd love to hear you just, just some of the definitions, ways in which you define pornography as, as well as lust.
2: If you first think about, um, let's see, first think about. Uh, let me let me start with addictions because uh, that's just going to lay out the the idea of what a pornography is. First, mm-hmm. I really like Ed Welch's definition of uh, addictions. He talks about desires run amok or voluntary slavery,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and it's really important to think about that because if you have your desires that overtake you, or voluntary slavery, what happens is you don't give into all the secular terms at first uh, that that define how we think about addictions, but you begin to think about like, where does scripture speak into this issue? And like where is it that our desires overtake us and rule us? And so I tried in the book to think about ruling desires in our life, how they overtake our life in general. But then I tried to think about uh, voluntary slavery, voluntary, like I choose it. I make enough choices and and I keep making that same choice enough to the extent that now I have enslaved myself to it. You actually let scripture begin to speak in. Desires run amok or voluntary slavery because scripture speaks to the responsibility, the slavery, and the desires of our life. That's addictions more generally. Then we get more specific for pornography. Mm. Um, so when when we speak of pornography, we're referring to a person who views naked people through images, videos, and fantasizing about them uh, for their own selfish pleasure. Or Christians arousing themselves by viewing someone else's nakedness, and usually also through uh, viewing their sexual acts. And nakedness and sex are exposed self selfishly exploited, consumed by a bystander who's not their husband or wife. And, you know, in today's world, there are ever-expanding ways to engage in sexual content. So we're talking sexting, phone sex, reading about sex and trashy novels, erotica novels, amni, virtual porn. So there's there's a wide array of things that are kind of expanding the sexual immorality and even pornography realm. So what what I was associated with was just no Internet and magazines. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm.
2: I mean, that 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 was the the 50s and 60s generation. Now you're talking about virtual pornography, where you're actually interacting with a person uh, over a camera live. So it has moved significantly Mm -hmm. because of the changes in our culture and technology.
0: Yeah, it's, yeah, it is unbelievable. And it's, I mean, as we'll get into um, specifically women and struggling with pornography, just how um, the porn industry has nuanced how they, they market to, to, to females. Um, but again, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. As, as we think about lust too, I did want to follow up and then I know Joe's going to jump in as well. Can you help us just with an understanding of, of lust? I know we were created as, as sexual beings, and of course, post-Genesis 3, we're all sexually broken. Um, how, how can we you know, properly appreciate beauty uh, before it spills over into lust? Can you kind of help with with some of that tension a little bit as well?
2: Yeah, so one of the problems that I often feel like I run into is um, people, have having grown up in the church, have such limited views of what Im- immorality and lust is, because they've heard most of their life, they've heard about uh, how the Bible preaches against sexual immorality appropriately, the, God warns against us going beyond the boundaries that he's set up for us for our own good. But one of the problems is nobody or rarely do they have a, a beautiful vision for God's intention for uh, a God-glorifying sexuality and and the beauty that's intended in the gift that God gives us in sex. Um, So what's often missing is a vision for what uh, God intends in sexuality. And if you have a beautiful vision for what God intends, that allows you to begin to understand what the distortions are. Rather than starting with all the distortions and spending most of your time and energy in the warnings and the distortions of what sex is like set out a vision for like what God wants you to have if you're married in a committed relationship. Um, So, you know, uh, oftentimes in conversations with men or women and dealing with this issue, one of the things I come to fairly quickly is realizing, oh, you don't even get what God intends. Mm. You don't, you don't have a, a vision for what, what it is when it's beautiful, when it's trusting, when it's vulnerable, when it's, when it's honest, or oh, you've been so corrupted by what the culture has offered you, you don't even understand anymore what the normal should be in a healthy marriage. Um, so it's almost like you gotta put pause and say, let's not spend all our time in distortions. Let me paint for you a vision for what is beautiful. I mean, you can just read the Song of Solomon, that, that's that's the book that God intends to give you a vision for what he wants in regards to the beauty of intimacy. Uh, and, you know, that's why it's in the canon mm-hmm. <laughs> to give us a, a picture of God's gift of sexuality to a committed couple in a, in a committed relationship. And then let's talk about the distortions, because now you have a vision for what is beautiful and what is right and what is vulnerable and what's transparent. Um, So there's safety and security in the marital covenant that allows for a beauty, beautiful experience of sexuality that lots of people just don't get Um, because they've just never even been taught what that looks like.
0: That's so good. And I just think of parents, youth workers uh, talking about th- this issue, starting with what's beautiful, starting with what God intended, giving them a proper understanding of of what sex is, because, again, as so many of them are just being raised in a culture where they're learning everything they know about sex and sexuality from the world. And so giving them this proper um, biblical understanding of sex first is uh yeah just uh, to emphasize that in the home is is vitally important.
2: Joe I want to get to get Can we to build on that for just a second? Please please do yes. Okay. Well so the generic parenting talk cuz you're referencing it <laughs> the like talk to my teens cuz I finally got to introduce them to that. I mean most parents are like scared to death to have this talk and get in oh, yeah. there and like do it and it's like a get in and get out um but what I'd love to say to any parents who are listening is don't just tell them and warn them about what's going to go wrong set for the set for them a beautiful vision for what god intends that's all i want to say on that that's great that's great joe
1: yeah and i think that's that's really helpful to hear and one of the things that that i was thinking about as you were talking about that you know show the beauty of what god intended before you get into like the the, the, the flip side of it. So what would you say for perhaps a culture, even a culture of people in the church who maybe that that beauty and that like what God intended, that was never really taught to them. And so all they got was this distorted view. So it's they've kind of gotten the backwards approach to it at the same time, feeling that shame and that guilt, knowing that this indulgence that they've had is wrong, but they've never really seen that the beauty that God intended. So it's kind of been given to them in reverse order. So how would you approach that?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I'd say two things. One, go to a church that preaches the whole Bible, um, Mm -hmm. because you'll never hear God's beauty if you don't have a pastor who will preach the Song of Solomon. I mean, as awkward as it is on a Sunday morning to hear somebody preach on that, (laughs) if you're committed to the full authority of Scripture, you're going to have a pastor who's going to come to that text, uh, who's not shy about setting out that vision because he's committed to the whole authority of Scripture. Um, He's committed to just as much as preaching Leviticus, as he is Song of Solomon, as he is like the really fun passages, like (laughs) Ephesians 2 or Romans 8. (laughs) <laughs> don't, don't just spend all your time in the New Testament, buddy. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Give the other good stuff that the people really need. That would be one side of it. The other side, and I always try to say this, no matter whenever I stand up and talk about sexuality or pornography or other things like that, I just want to make appeal that anybody who's gone through a difficult history, whether it's just one difficult relationship or it's a long history, there's always forgiveness on the cross. I mean, it it doesn't matter how bad your situation is, how ashamed you are, like how how much you feel like you've messed up, there's nobody beyond God's grace. Mm. There's nobody that can't stand in the shadow of the cross and get a full experience of God washing over them with his own love and forgiving him for all of it.
1: Mm.
2: So I I just want people to feel like, uh, because there's so many people walking around thinking, I have messed my life up. I mean, I hear this phrase all the time. I've ruined my life. I've messed it up. It's, you just don't understand how bad things are or what what I did. I think, well, I don't. I mean, I wasn't in your shoes, but I know what God's grace is, and I know you are not beyond it. Mm. You are right. not beyond God's grace. Otherwise, I'm preaching a gospel that's not working.
0: <laughs> mm. Amen to that. And, and just to reiterate, I mean, that that is definitely... You know how you begin your book. I mean, you you talk about those who kind of are the arrogant drill sergeants who are just you know rebuking those who have been caught in a sin, and you say you know, to to you know lead in a spirit of gentleness and and love and, and kindness and emphasizing the the gospel. And so that's yes, such a vital message. Anytime we're having a discussion on on this topic, um, and, and Deepak, I, I know um, as you're as we're having a discussion, thinking about God's good design of sex and sexuality, and again how your book begins, you then get into kind of post Genesis three. And as we deal with, you know, the, the sexual desires and you say that our sexual desires become self-centered, disordered, and idolatrous. And so I'd love for you just to kind of walk us through those three categories.
2: Yeah. So self-centered, uh, the the nature of sexual desire is that it's selfish. It wants what it wants for itself. Um, And so Sex, you know, you're going in there for pleasure for me, not for anybody else. Um, I'm in it for what I can get out of it. And that's that's where I think Christianity turns sexuality completely upside down. um, Because really good sex is not self-centered, but it is other-centered. Just like, you know, Philippians 2. my, My life is oriented around what's better for the other, because the way Christ reoriented himself in coming down and dying for me. Um, So in in that sense, like I'm I'm looking for people who uh, want to turn around the nature of the selfish desire and selfishness comes up all the time when I'm helping people who are struggling with this. Mm -hmm. You just see it like spill over in all kinds of aspects of their life. Um, And that's where like the root of the tree corrupts the whole tree.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: You know, that selfishness, you think it's just pornography. But you begin to look at other aspects of your life you see the selfishness kind of spill over and not kind of i'll strike that word it does spill over into other aspects of their life um and so you gotta you gotta be really careful of that so that was one what were the other two again um and i wrote nice. the book so i'm more. <laughs> <laughs> self-centered disordered and
0: then idolatrous yeah
2: so disordered i mean this is just the nature this is the nature of the fall God has created for us in Genesis one and two, a clear design and a clear order for what He intends. And in that moment when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, it was their decoration of independence, like the colonial rebels against King George the Third, mm. and saying, "I'll have nothing of this anymore. I got my own plan." Mm. So the the distortion begins now. In that what God plan was, is now completely messed up by the fall. Uh, so our, our desires are not oriented the way that God intends. So selfishness steps right into disorder because now we're talking about God's design for what intends into us. Idolatrous, I mean, this is interesting. There's a couple of different ways to portray the idolatry. I mean, idolatry gets to in Romans 1.25, like I'm worshiping creation rather than the creator. Uh, that's one way to say it. But another way to say it is, I just use a word picture to portray this. Um, imagine if we were in, um, if, if were in a store and you're looking across and you see all the, the price tags and there's price tags and everything, so you know what their value is. Well, um, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Um, I can look across your life, if I had the kind of vision that God has, and see how you value everything in your life. And idolatry is when we're valuing things much more than they should be. When we give them a weight and order and importance that God never intended. And, and there are so many things in life that we give a weight and importance to that, that actually implode because we assign it too much value. We give it too much significance and God never intended that way. So it's like I mark up the price tag. You know, it's, it's supposed to be valued as a dollar. But I value it so much. I think it's worth like forty million dollars. My whole life revolves around that, and I'm 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 often pointing out that fact. It's like, look, like you are worshiping. I had the conversation with a guy today. I said, "You have made this woman an idol."
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I had to say to a guy, like, "You you you have made this woman an idol." And what's the what do you need to do with that? In my word picture is slash the price, <laughs> <laughs> get 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 it down to the price so that you're you are. The phrase I'll use, you want to value what God values. Mm. And you want to value it exactly the way God values it. Mm. Not any more, not any less. We want to measure it exactly the way. Or in, in regards to idolatry, worshiping something in creation that goes beyond what God, uh, goes beyond God it, it competes with God, it replaces God, then I need to repent of that. Mm. Um, so sex and everything revolving around it becomes idolatrous. It takes over our life and it becomes a God replacement. It becomes overvalued in our life. And you see it, especially in the addict, the addict's life is overrun. (laughs) His his life is oriented around sex. And you can see the the clear comparisons with cocaine addiction or uh, all kinds of other drug addictions, the same kinds of tendencies, the self-justification, the lying, your life oriented around the addictions, all kinds of things like that uh, begin to take over there. So that's the three that you just mentioned.
1: Hey Deepak, you just uh, touched on the, the drug addiction, which I, I just think is interesting because um, I, I wanted to get your take on this of like, how how to think about like educating future generations. I'm a parent. I've worked in youth ministry. Uh, I'm a millennial. And so I, I grew up in this gender. I'm a child of the nineties where we did the, the dare programs, the drug awareness uh, resistance education, I think is what it was. And so we were just hammered over and over again of just the destructive nature of drugs and how dangerous they are. And it had an effect on me. I don't know. I, I can't speak for everyone else, but it, it really kind of shed light on just how destructive and dangerous things are, regardless of the temporary pleasure it might bring. Um, Would you say that any sort of uh, that you could kind of apply those principles to pornography? Okay, one of the things you were talking about earlier was, you know, the selfishness uh, tends to kind of take seek your own good for like momentary pleasures. And I just kept thinking about weighing these two things of like short term versus long term. And that seems to be what we see in a lot of idolatry is um, taking something in the short term. Versus a, a a better pleasure that god has given us in a long term and in a lasting nature and so how would you how would you approach teaching people how to weigh short-term versus long-term pleasures
2: yeah. yeah well you know um it's a great question i uh selfishness unto itself tends to be blind to the long-term eternal good hmm uh, it tends not to see like beyond it, the parameters of its own selfishness. It's, it has a hard time seeing beyond those boundaries. So, you know, what what we're teaching people is to have eternal sight, you know, eternal vision for the long, long game. And that's p- part of Christianity is like perseverance. Uh, I got I got to make it through today, but I also want to be standing here in 20 years uh, and be found faithful at the same time. And so I got to fight through my sin for today, the selfishness. But I also got to help you see, yeah, we we got to keep our eyes on the long term goal. And Paul does that all the time. I mean, he talk when he talks about running the race, he talk he often talks about getting the prize.
1: Mm.
2: I mean, he, in 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 in, um, in his world, getting the prize was like finishing the race, and they crowned them at the end. You know, in our world, it's like. Running the race and you get the Olympic gold afterwards, standing up on the stand. Um, but if you think of something like First Peter 5, even like elders like us as pastors serving, Paul talks about the crown of glory even for pastors. That is the eschatological, I mean that's a big word, but it just means the in the end reward <laughs> that he's affording to us. So you want to help Pete preach to people not just a vision of how to fight the battle in the moment. So like dealing with my selfishness, you want to help them see the end of the race, too. And you want to give them pictures of even like 5, 10, 15 years down the road. What's a model, and example of what maturity would look like if I keep moving forward? So kind of the end of the game, which is in in, in this the the most basic way to help people understand that is preach about heaven. You him a vision of glory and what it looks like to get to the end. Like um, one of my um, best friends who ended up in um, ministry and he's a pastor of a church in the other side of DC. Uh, I had the privilege of doing his premarital and officiating his wedding. And I loved it. first guy who came to me and said, "You, know, what I want you to do in the wedding sermon for my ceremony is I want you to preach about heaven. I love that. <laughs> what else do I get to preach about Great. heaven at a wedding? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's like I want the, all those non-Christians there to see the glories of what it would be like to be with God. Yeah, that, That's the end goal. But in-between is like Colossians, Colossians 1, 28, 29. Paul's great goal is for us to have maturity in Christ. So the in-between is like hold out models for people of what this looks like if they're able to actually fight it and win. And I love that in our church... Uh, a number of the elders who I've served with and actually been alongside—we we showed up in this church decades ago as single guys, and we're all now standing around each other, married with children, and graying and losing our hair, um, and we're um, we're serving faithfully as uh, some staff elders, some lay elders, but all kinds of struggles in our singleness, including pornography, we all battled, and the Lord has given abundant grace. So I can hold out these guys' as examples to 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds who are saying, teenagers, even younger now, who are saying, like, I don't know what to do. It doesn't feel like this is ever going to end. I can say, you know what? I I can hold out for you men who have fought this and who are on the side of 5, 10, 15, 20 years of being free it's real possible. I mean, that's a, I mean, I'll get off my stump now, Joe. I mean, that was a longer, longer answer, but. And.
1: No, that's great.
0: Yeah. When, we, when you start talking about heaven, it's kind of hard to just uh, stop that. Uh, yeah. Uh, no. No, that, that's, that, that's, that's really good. And, and, like something as you're you're even saying some of this, I'm thinking of the you kind of have your book divided into two sections. again, it's it's two volumes, but then in that first volume, the, the two sections, and you are talking about pornography and how some of the unique challenges in various you know stages of life, you deal with singleness, you deal with dating, you deal with marriage, you also deal with women issues, you deal with children and teen issues. And again, I know you wrote a book on dating as well. Um, I know we don't have time to talk about every single one of these categories, but I'd love for you just to talk a little bit about,
2: maybe some of the unique
0: struggles in, in dating as well as, uh, you know, having this topic of pornography and how it influences that or impacts that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, interesting. When we wrote about dating, my burden is one, because our congregation is full of 20 year olds. And so this is a, co- a common problem would be a young woman who was earnestly dating a guy. And then the whole thing came up. He, he shared that he struggled with pornography and she didn't know what to do with it. Um, And I I was a bit frustrated because I was looking around. I just couldn't find a chapter that just really explained what I would want to say to her about what to do if you're in the middle of that dilemma. Um, And to, to highlight it, my position, you know, some people will like it. Some people won't, but here we go. Is I think if a guy is struggling significantly and consistently with pornography, then he needs to work on that first before he gets committed into a dating relationship. He needs to clean that up first. Uh, am I saying perfect? No. But am I saying he has had significant progress so that it's not a consistent battle and the older men in his life actually commend him and feel like he's ready for dating? Uh, that what I run into is guys who have been reckless, haven't dealt with it, don't really have much discipling, you know, or have been careless about it, and they get pretty far into a dating relationship. And for her, it feels like betrayal. <laughs> the exact same words that couples who experience adultery in marriage use, I get girlfriends using when they this comes out in the dating relationship. That kind of betrayal, this is wrong, I feel violated, um, when, uh, when they find out their boyfriend's looking at other women. Um, and my warning to guys, uh, is that this builds a really bad pattern for marriage. It sets you up really poorly because it breaks down the trust even before the commitment is, is asked for. Uh, so how are we going to have a really good foundation for a solid trusting relationship if the relationship keeps stumbling into this issue of pornography? So I've had to slow couples down I've been encouraged some couple to break up and get the guy to focus on cleaning this up before they get back together again. I've had to slow people down and getting engaged um, and saying, you're not ready yet. (laughs) You need to deal with this because this will wreak havoc in your marriage. I Uh, bet
0: those are some fun conversations. too. Oh my gosh. Well, this is
2: why, this is why, this is why I'm a pastor because you gotta, you gotta deal with the hard conversations too, um, to care for them. But I'm, but part of my incentive is I'm on the other end in the marriages that are wrecked by this. Mm -hmm. And so I see what happens when it, and when it wheels its ugly head in the middle of a marriage. And so I'm trying to do the advance work. It motivates me to get back on the front lines and say to couples who aren't even there yet, like, no, clean it up. (laughs) No, don't do that. (laughs) Like, don't, don't just pass over this issue and think, Meryl Bliss will take care of this. Do not think that just because you can have sex in marriage that the problem will go away. <laughs> uh, and and so uh, uh, they, they may never come back and thank me. They rarely do. But I'm trying to prevent for them years of consternation. And honestly, I mean, as a pastor, there's a little bit of selfishness in it because I know if I do that good work, it's for their holiness, but it's for my good later on. Because I don't want to actually be in the trenches with them in those hard moments. I wanted mm. to have a happy marriage. Yeah. The bad part about being a counselor is people show up when their, their most difficult problems occur, and I become their best friend at that moment. So you really don't want me to be your best friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a great tagline. In <laughs>
0: a great
1: tagline for counseling. You don't want me to be
2: your best friend. <laughs> yeah. And then when so you're doing true. really well, then you go off into never never land of discipling <laughs> the rest of the, culture of the congregation, which is fine. I'm I'm glad for that.
1: Deepak, how how important is I mean, I've hear you heard you talk a lot about counseling and, and pastoral shepherding? How important is community when you are fighting these battles and having people around you that you can walk through that with you, and even maybe even expand that to, um, how do how do you have those conversations with a spouse or a partner when you are like in the midst of struggling with something like that?
2: Yeah, what a good question. Uh, community is huge, and I'll use the words H U G E like in caps, like bold, like highlighted in yellow as 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 much as I can emphasize. And that we're, we're very big on having a culture of discipling uh, and what we call a compelling community. So most people show up in our church because they're, they, they hear about the solid expositional Bible teaching. But most people stay because they get drawn into community. Hmm. Uh, they, they, they fall in love with the community. Uh, people don't stick around forever because of the expositional preaching, but they do stick around because the community has drawn them in. Uh, so you want to get connected community from the very beginning. Uh, if you're single, you want an older man or woman in the faith discipling you so that when you start facing some of these life questions of dating, marriage, career, all that, you're not sorting through this with just your single friends who are great. But if you think about it, they have the same amount of wisdom as you do. Um, so you want people ahead of you, older, wiser, more godly, investing in. And you want to set that up from very beginning whenever you show up at a church like get connected to disciplers because it's going to be good for your good right away. Get back to that maturity thing I said earlier to help you. But then you start moving into something like dating. There's so many prudential wisdom decisions in dating. You got to figure out. There's lots of biblical clear principles, but there's a lot of decisions like, do I keep my job? Do we move? You know, uh, wh- When do we date? What stages? When should we get engaged? There's all kinds of questions that show up. Uh, you just want wisdom people speaking in, and you want what I'd call that like that spiritual relational safety net built in there, so that when you get into dating and then same thing marriage, like people are around you and invested. That's especially the case when sin shows up. You, I, I would rather um, have young men who are connected to uh, disciples so that their wife does not bear the brunt of their sin alone Hmm. when they get married. It's a a huge asset to a girlfriend to have other godly men involved in that young man's life so that she doesn't bear the brunt of dealing with his sin. Like there's an older man in the faith that's saying, you need to clean up that porn. (laughs) You can't keep moving forward. She doesn't need to be the one saying that to him. Um, And same thing in marriage, you know, a guy makes a stupid decision Looks at porn in the middle of marriage. He needs other godly men saying, "What on earth are you doing? I love you, but let's fight this together." Um, His wife doesn't need to bear 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 the brunt of this by herself. Um, So whether it's singleness, dating, marriage, you just you need to be connected to community for the vitality of your spiritual life, but also for your survival with your sin. Um, And you gotta establish that early. I mean, you gotta go after it as soon as you arrive in a gospel preaching church and take initiative ask for it don't wait yeah. on people
0: yeah that's a, that's a really good word and um, you know, for the longest time, it seemed like whenever we talked about pornography, we thought, or just addressed it as a, a male's issue, you know, a, a man's issue. And even in this discussion we're we're kind of highlighting that, I mean, we're, we're three men talking about it, but I do like in your book, how you specifically talk about women and this issue. Um, you, you cite a stat, I think yeah, it was in 2003 said readers of today's Christian women's online newsletter that 34% admitted to intentionally accessing internet pornography. And, um, but before we recorded this, uh, podcast, I texted a group of uh, male and female youth workers and just said, hey, what kind of questions do you have? And a few of the the females in the group said, hey, just talk about this issue, how, how it relates to women. So, so what are what are some of the the stats or the research that you've come across as you've uh, talked about this issue in reference to to women?
2: Yeah. Well, first thing I'll, I'll speak as a pastor would be saying, it, it, this is so portrayed as a men's issue. So I appreciate you bringing that up. That that chapter was probably the most helpful chapter to me uh, in thinking through it as a pastor, because it highlighted all kinds of ways in which the issue is even different compared to men. Um, but I'd say as a pastor, you want to be really careful in talking about this issue publicly, because if you make it just a men's issue, all the women who are struggling with it in your congregation will feel a double layer of shame. They're already ashamed because they struggle with the issue. Now they feel ashamed because there's something wrong with them because it's supposed to be a man's problem. Mm. And yet they're struggling with it too. And so you, you want to be careful. So we try to do that in the book. We try to, we try to speak to men and women. We constantly try to refer to this guy struggles and this gal struggle. Um, And then we wrote a whole chapter on how women struggle compared, compared to men. But then you get into other things like, um, uh, uh, um, I'll mention one book that I thought was, dy- was dynamite on this subject was Helen Thorne's Purity is Possible was really one of the best books I've ever read on addressing women struggling with sexual immorality. Uh, Helen dealt with the idolatry of it in women's life. She dealt with fantasy issues um, that women struggle with. And then the one thing that I grew in understanding is more of the whole realm of shades of gray and erotica. Uh, how it is a huge temptation. It's a temptation for men, but I'd say it's, it's, it's a huge arena for women. So you're not just viewing things online, you're reading about it in a very explicit nature. Um, and that is the same thing in a kind of Romans 13 way. You don't have to just see something. You can read about something and it feeds the flesh. It, it's another way to feed the sinful nature. And to, going back to Ed Welch's definition of desires run amok, you feed the desire, and it continues to grow. So you want to you be sensitive to the fact that women struggle with lust, women struggle with masturbation, women struggle with sexual desires, uh, and we can't treat them as if that doesn't exist. That was another thing, testimony of a number of women just saying like, they make it a men's issue, and when a woman says "We struggle too," it's almost as if they're dismissed. Hmm. Uh, but our misogynistic culture that makes this a men's issue and treat women as sexual objects and us dehumanizing women and, and not recognizing like it, they are made in the image of God too, number one, and number two, they're made as sexual beings um. So their, their struggles are similar. So same desires run amok, same voluntary slavery, but their struggles are different. Uh, growing in like fantasy and erotica and other issues that uh, that are and other motivators that affect them that are not exactly the same as men, some that are same. But I, I would say the main thing is be sensitive to the fact that women do struggle also. Don't ignore that fact. And that, that has the wonderful effect If you want to talk about it publicly, want to be honest about it, it lets women come out of the darkness and the shadows and come into light. It welcomes them and saying, hey, I see your struggle. I know that you struggle. And we want to welcome you into the kingdom of God. That there is forgiveness for you too. Don't give in to the cultural lie and unfortunately the church's mistake in, in describing this as a men's issue.
1: Deepak, I thought that was a really interesting point of saying how you know if a woman is hearing that this is just a man's issue, that it could be kind of that double shame of the shame of already struggling with it, but then the shame of feeling like it's not supposed to be their problem. But then I, I started thinking, you know, how what do you do with that that shame? And it seems like would you would it be safe to say that the shame really comes through? being alone. And it. it almost seems like being able to talk about it with someone or having someone else talk about it with you is is kind of a pressure valve for that shame, is what it seems like you're, you're saying. Would you say that's true?
2: Yeah. Well, yes, very much so. It's a good observation, Joe, that there, the shame is made worse by the isolation mm. that that is created by putting women in a corner and not giving them a chance to be helped by this. So it's certainly made worse by um, the way we treat it versus, I mean, what does God do? God says, come into the light. Mm. Yeah. He he invites us into the light because God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. That's John 1, and then you think of Ephesians 5 as like, what do we do with the darkness? We expose it by the light. So anything that's hidden in the darkness, we want to expose it uh, and bring bring it out of the light. Um, Mm. Mold grows in the darkness not in the light. <laughs> mm. So any kind of corrupt sin, we want to get it into light, expose it, and let God do his His fine work in beginning to change it, just like he typically does. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Deepak,
0: oftentimes what we're saying, we need to start having these conversations at younger and younger ages, that we need to be preparing our children for these worldly images that they, they'll see. How can children's ministries in a church play a role in this conversation? I mean, I know you um, help out with the children's ministry at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. You're you're thinking about, you know, children's ministry issues. Well, what are ways in which churches can start to introduce this or, uh, you know, come alongside parents in this? Because, again, and there's a sense in which if we just go by statistics alone— By the time students are getting into youth ministry, they've already been exposed. And so we need to start sooner. So just give us some thoughts there.
2: Yeah. Well, this gets back to then uh, making sure in your congregation, you are taking the time to equip and educate your parents. I'll understand that parents are the primary disciples of their children. The The first and foremost responsibility belongs to them. And so it's awkward. to I mean, I'm not going to have a sex education class in a congregation in a church setting. Um, that's not what we're going to do on a sensitive subject like that. And uh, We're going to make sure that we're helping the parents think through it. And parents, like I said earlier, like they, they don't want they don't want to talk about this. It's awkward. It's hard enough to talk about their spouse about this, let alone their children. Um, and yet they fall behind because the culture is talking about it and the culture is getting it to our kids earlier and earlier. We want to get to parents and be able to help them understand how to build that vision of a beautiful sexuality early. Get out ahead of the culture. Help your kids understand it. Um, And then um, not just do the the drop-in when they're a teenager one-time talk. I would want them to open it up and have a, a regular dialogue. It's not like we're talking about sex at the dinner table. That's not what we're talking about. But there's an openness that is communicated and a regular conversation that happens with with your children so that they are able to talk to you about sensitive and hard things. If if my kid stumbles, I want my kid to know me so well that the first instinct he has is to come to me and say, I need help, Hmm. rather than hide and feel ashamed. I just want such a good relationship with my kid that that would be their natural instinct. But that doesn't happen by magic. It happens by me getting in there, being a good parent, being involved, being invested in discipling my kid, but also teaching them and equipping them from early on. So we teach our kids about sexuality in our home from early on. like We've worked at beginning to have that conversation from a very young age in a developmentally appropriate way for every stage so that once we hit teenage years, it's not like we're suddenly dropping in we've been having this conversation we're now just building on it in a further degree than what we had what we had before i need my parents to understand that and i need to take the time to equip them with resources and conversations to help them understand this so i will i will say this anytime i get the mic and the pastor uh, the conversation is about how do you equip your kids with sexuality i'll tell parents start early be appropriate be thoughtful be biblical um, but, you know, don't wait till it's too late. Um, get in there early and equip your kids.
1: You've mentioned a lot of resources uh, in books and books and things like that. So what would you say is a, a good resource you would point someone to like a, a, a teenager or even a parent of a teenager in this situation?
2: You mean in terms of um, thinking about sexuality in general? Yeah, technology, yeah. Like, if you were to things.
1: think of like, what is the most helpful resource that I would point someone to in this disu- whole discussion we're having,
2: even Beside- all of them. besides your books? Obviously. Uh, well, I mean, uh, my books aren't really there for the teenagers. It's, but if we're thinking about parents with teenagers, I'm thinking about some resources. You know, on the um, I just I read this past year. I read Andy Crouch's Tech Family. And I really appreciated how he established, not just a a philosophy of technology, he established a philosophy of the whole family. I mean, everything from what's rhythms of rest um, to what it means to have a family culture, we're invested in one another and technology doesn't define us. I just appreciate a lot of things. Then I read the book in the series that you have, John, Uh, really appreciated that you had on Christian focus on technology and laid out theological frameworks, interacted with teenagers and helping them think through that. I mean, I thought both those resources I read, read this past year to help our kids think through that. Um, So that's on the technology end. Then um, there's a couple of different series that are out there that actually help in laying out the the development appropriate language from an early age and develops it all the way through high school. So IVP has a series uh, by Stanton Jones, um, who was the provost at Wheaton for many years, where he and his wife wrote books from the earliest ages going all the way up. And then they have a parenting guide um, also. And then same thing, Concordia Press has had a series, same, uh, the exact same idea from a very early age, talking about sexuality and taking it all the way through high school. Um, and Concordia Press's series just has gotten a, a, re- a, a reboot So they have new covers, updated information, because it's been out for a while. Um, So uh, both of those series are actually really good resources by IVP and Concordia Press. And I can send you, I don't know if you have show notes or other things you want to attach later on, the exact titles um, for parents to be able to look up later on.
0: Yeah, that that'd be helpful. And and we'll be sure to send you a check for mentioning RYM's book on the on the subject as well. So
2: <laughs> So cool.
0: thanks. Thanks for saying that. But look, um, as any time we bring a guest on with this, there's so many I mean, I've got a list of questions I want to ask you, but I know we're we're getting to time. But but Deepak we appreciate you coming on the podcast to help us talk about this massive subject just a little bit. And again, pointing people to your 31-day devotional with PNR dealing with this subject, as well as, Lord willing, your forthcoming book, Rescue Plan, Rescue Skills, that will be coming out in the fall of 2021. Uh, but Deepak, we, again, thank you so much for your time, for coming
2: on today. Yeah, glad to be with you guys. I had a fun time talking. Oh, come and buy without money Oh, come and feast without...